0: This is the CMS Colloquium podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Um. Okay. Hi. Uh, I am Nick Seaver. I'm a master's student in comparative media studies. I am doing my thesis work on player pianos, and so I'm very excited to introduce John Picker, who is a visiting associate professor of literature here at MIT. He's visiting us from Harvard English. Uh, He wrote a book called Victorian Soundscapes, which is really wonderful, and he's here to talk to us today about transatlantic acoustics.
1: is in one sense a response to the anxieties of an age when voices became severed from speaking selves as a visual representation of voice that is necessarily silent, unplayable in any conventional audio sense. The scream presents a rival as well as more subjective kind of audio archive. The bands of color in the sky and the curves of the central figure constituting tracks and waves, a record of a voice that can only be imagined to be heard, if that's the word. The appeal of the painting lies, at least in part, in the response that we, the viewers, have as we sound the scream in the chambers of our own minds. The scream stands in an inverse relation to what the film theorist and composer, Michel Chion, writing about film sound, has called the acumetra, the voice on the film soundtrack whose source is unseen on the screen. For Chion, James Whale's 1933 adaptation of H.G. Wells' 1897 novel The Invisible Man is, quote, one of the greatest early sound films because the transparent protagonist is a singular form of acumetra, and the impact of the film stems from the cinema's discovery of the powers of the invisible voice, unquote. As even Chien grants, the acumetra extends beyond or really predates talking pictures it's a critical component of the phonograph, telephone and radio, for example, which are inherently acousmatic, functioning as they do on the premise of the unseen speaker. She all doesn't acknowledge that it's also an important aspect of Wells's novel. Wells's novel like Monk's painting engages with the idea of the acumetra in ways that parallel and respond to the development of voice recording and broadcasting. The scream embodies the other side of the Akumetra as the visible rendition of an unheard voice, while The Invisible Man conveys on the page a character's transformation into an Akumetra with all its accompanying difficulties. The acousmatic status of Wells' protagonist allows for a conspicuous, if incoherent, racial performance in the novel, one that reveals the limits of Wells' sympathetic imagination. In this talk, I'll look first at Wells' story. But I'll go on to show how, when attending to questions of voice and sound technologies in several different media, the racial and ethnic dimensions that become audible forge invisible connections among modes of art that conventional academic fields, at least, have typically treated as distinct. By tracing a route of influence from a British novel to radio and sound film and back to an American novel, I want to offer a new way to characterize a crucial period of transition from the late Victorian to the modern world, And this is what I'm calling transatlantic acoustics. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the plot of The Invisible Man, let me just briefly summarize it. Late one night, a stranger whose name we later learn is Griffin arrives at an inn in an English countryside town. Griffin, who turns out to be a former medical student, conducts chemistry experiments in his room, irritates the residents with his behavior, and finally reveals himself to be An invisible man. Fleeing the authorities, Griffin comes across a tramp whom he coerces into becoming his assistant. The tramp eventually tries to turn him in, at which point Griffin chases after him and is shot in the arm. Griffin escapes wounded to a house nearby, which turns out to be the home of Dr. Kemp, who had been his fellow medical student. Griffin tells Kemp his story. In dire poverty upon obtaining his degree and desperate to make a name for himself in science by discovering a process to render objects invisible. Griffin steals money from his father. While living in a London boarding house and working on his device, Griffin turns a resident's cat invisible and is confronted by the landlord. Afraid of being charged with vivisection, a criminal offense, he then turns his apparatus on himself with success. Griffin flees, sets fire to the boarding house, and roams out of London. He explains to Kemp that he had set himself up at the inn to try to make himself visible again, but having failed, he vows to begin what he calls a reign of terror over England with Kemp as his associate. Kemp refuses this role, and Griffin, promising to kill him the next day, escapes. The next day, Griffin chases Kemp into town, where a group of men manages to overcome Griffin and beat him to death, at which point, for reasons that are unexplained in the novel, his body becomes visible again. The novel closes with a comic epilogue recounting the fate of the tramp now keeper of the inn known as the Invisible Man. The deeper value of the novel for my purposes lies in the language and context not fully conveyed in uh, my quick summary of the plot. For nearly the entire story, Griffin's face remains bandaged, masked, or invisible, a space onto which he and those who encounter him can graft a physiognomy of choice. His loss of face one that seems a step beyond that of the featureless face of the scream, is the defining quality of the achymetra in a phonographic world. And with it, Griffin registers in the text acousmatically as voice. Well before and after readers learn his name, the narrator refers to Griffin as, quote, the aerial voice, or, quote, a voice wailing and laughing, sobbing and groaning, unquote, and at other points simply as the capital V voice. The Tramp, he tries to make his assistant, calls him a voice out of heaven. And as a representative moment of what I'm talking about, here's a passage in which Griffin speaks to the Tramp. He says, uh, quote, pull yourself together, for you have to do the job I've chosen for you. I've chosen you, and at this point, the narrator adds, said the voice. You have to be my helper. Help me and I will do great things for you. An invisible man is a man of power. But if you betray me, if you fail to do as I direct you, and the narrator adds, he paused and tapped the tramp's shoulder smartly. The tramp gave a yelp of terror at the touch. As the source of this mysterious voice, Griffin's invisible form becomes a charged charged space onto which he and others can impose their own constructions of his identity ones that in the context of 1890s anxieties over biological and cultural collapse, more often than not, evoke race. After encountering the Invisible Man, the character fearenside that's actually his name, Inside, speculates about his body in racial terms. And this is a somewhat long quote, uh, but, a, but a continuous one from this character Fierinside. Um He says, well, he's black. Leastways, his legs are. I see through the tear of his trousers and the tear of his gloves. You'd have expected a sort of pinky to show, wouldn't you? Well, there wasn't none. Just blackness. I tell you, he's as black as my hat. That man's a piebald Teddy, black here and white there, in patches. And he's ashamed of it. He's a kind of half-breed, and the colors come off patchy instead of mixing. I've heard of such things before. And it's the common thing with horses, as anyone can see. Fear inside's comment, black here and white there, might as well characterize the way Griffin is represented at different points in The Invisible Man. On the one hand, Griffin tells Kemp he is, quote, almost an albino, unquote. And at his death, it's revealed that, quote, his hair and beard were white, not gray with age, but white with the whiteness of albinism, unquote. On the other hand, at key moments, his language figures him as black. He tells Kemp that after his father's funeral, quote, I remember myself as a gaunt black figure, unquote. When he remo- removes his dummy nose, he reveals a, quote, black cavity beneath it, unquote. And then there's this striking characterization of his approach to his invisibility experiments. He says, but I went to work like a nigger. And here, um, I'm giving you a very radically condensed version of a longer argument I made a, a make about racial ambiguities in the novel. The problematic role of race in The Invisible Man begs the question of Wells's positions on racial matters. For all his lauded visionary speculation, Wells reveals his limitations in his more conventional racial bigg- bigotry. After a visit to the southern U.S. in 1905, Wells wrote of, quote, the dirty fortune of the Russian Jews who prey upon color in the Carolinas, unquote. And then went on to express his eugenicist bias under the cloak of sympathy, quote, the pure-blooded Negro has the taint in the blood, unquote, he writes. And while, quote, the black or mainly black people seem to be fairly content with their inferiority as a pleasant, smiling, acquiescent folk, unquote, of the, quote, Man with a broader brain, who is a product of interracial marriage, think of the accumulating injustice he must bear with him through life." In the turn of the century American South, where it took merely a suspicion of so-called Negro blood in a person's ancestry to determine their legal status as black, pervasive miscegenation panic meant that those with olive-colored skin, uh, many Jews, for example, or Italians, were subjected to white Christian anxiety over what the historian Joel Williamson calls, quote, invisible blackness. And to return to Wells writing in 1905, quote, the colored people of America are of a different quality from the Jew altogether. He writes, as if to differentiate his view from the then widespread Southern notion of Jews as invisibly black. And this is Wells again. More genial, more careless, more sympathetic, franker, less intellectual, less acquisitive, less wary and restrained, in a word, more occidental. Of his experience in the U.S. overall, Wells writes that, quote, I took and confirmed a mighty liking to these gentle, human, dark-skinned people, unquote, with the giveaway inclusion, that adjective, human. The locus of the humanity of the invisible man, the only constant against his unstable body and unseen face ultimately is his voice. The tension among voice, face, and race that Wells generates captures the special dynamic of early recorded and broadcast sound, which challenged what the media historian Lisa Gittleman has called, quote, the visuality of music, the sum of visual experiences that bolster and accompany musical practice and that extend to the societal norms of visually apprehending racial and other differences." Unquote. For Gittleman, v- phonographs and related mechanical music devices questioned, quote, the visual norms of intellectual property. And this is Gittleman. By removing the performer from view, the technology of recorded sound also removed the most keenly felt representation of the performer's race. This helps explain the enormous popularity of racist Kuhn songs in the late 1890s since white listeners now could experience the racial other, or at least the sound of that other, without the threat of a physical presence. The phonograph permitted new kinds of invisibility that at once obscured, but in different ways drew attention to what might be called the face of race. One of Edison's period ads for the phonograph shows a child looking for the band by taking an axe to one of Edison's machines. Yet if we go looking for the band in The Invisible Man, we find a scene that is the inverse of this image in the one explicitly musical moment in the novel. Wandering invisible through London, Griffin hears, he says, a blare of music. And this turns out to be the inevitable Salvation Army Band, chanting in the roadway and scoffing on the pavement. In one of Wells's Better Little Blasphemies, the hymn that they sing is identified as When Shall We See His Face. The Salvation Army Band may sing, but by the end of the novel, the revelation that ironically awaits is the invisible man's own. It comes with the exposure of his face and beaten body after his final word pierces the air, which is, quote, a wild scream of mercy, mercy, that died down swiftly to a sound like choking. In 1933, just over a quarter century later and six years after the premiere of The Jazz Singer, the first talking picture, and perhaps not coincidentally, the story of an immigrant cantor's son whose performance in blackface displaces or renders invisible his Jewishness, making him, in effect, invisibly Jewish, Universal Studios released director James Whale's version of The Invisible Man, a film that the talkie revolution had made possible the dependence of Wells's novel on the Akumetra is something sound film realized in ways that silent film never could. And I'd like now to turn to the film career of Whale, who's best known for 1931's Frankenstein and its sequel, Bride of Frankenstein, and whose success turned upon the emergence of sound film. And this is, um, when William asked me to present this paper to the colloquium at the end of October, I was trying to think about um, trying to make it uh, a, holiday appropriate. So this is, um, this is my gesture in that direction here. Whale's Invisible Man takes a central place in his output, falling as it does at the midpoint of his most important years as a marquee name in Hollywood. If Wells's novel spoke to Whale, it was because Whale himself was so invested in bringing speech to film, and specifically in making movie stars talk and frequently scream. After a decade in the theater, Whale got the attention of the film industry where talking pictures had suddenly made successful stage directors an attractive commodity. Britain was two years behind the U.S. when it came to synchronized sound recording. So Whale relocated to L.A. to begin his film work after signing a contract with Paramount in 1929. His career turned on the new value of voice on screen. His first cinematic work of real significance was his apprenticeship on Howard Hughes' World War I drama, Hell's Angels, which Hughes had begun in 1927 as a silent, but belatedly made into a talkie by dubbing the celebrated aerial shots and hiring Whale to direct the dialogue scenes. Credited as dialogue stager, though working more like a co-director, Whale proceeded to reshoot over half the film with speech and sound and provided Jean Harlow with her screen debut when she replaced Greta Nissen, whose heavy Norwegian accent made her a talkie liability. That film was finally released in 1930. By the time Whale made The Invisible Man three years later, he had established himself at Universal Studios with a progression of films remarkable on the one hand for a concern with the plight of social outcasts and on the other for technical innovations, not the least of which was the skilled use of sound. As different as the settings and plots are of the early talkies, Waterloo Bridge, Frankenstein, and Whale's haunted house classic The Old Dark House, the production's all feature experimentation with sound effects, the range of the voice, and the limits of spoken language. Set in London during the war, Waterloo Bridge is punctuated by air raid sirens, gramophone records, and barnyard animal noises, and it culminates in a droning German zeppelin attack, as you can sort of gather from the poster here, Uh, a, a massive explosion and a memorable scream from its star, May Clark, In Frankenstein, Clark returns to scream again as Frankenstein's bride-to-be when she's abducted by the monster on her wedding night. Here and in The Old Dark House from 1932, Boris Karloff takes on roles, the portrayal of the monster in the first, of course, and a mute Welsh butler in the second, in which he lacks speech but not vocal expression. Responding, for example, to Clark's scream with a growl that's primal and comic at the same time. Whale's definitive sonic moment may be Frankenstein's famous creation scene, where a circuit-breaking snap, crackle, and pop are essential to convey the sense of real electric power needed to bring the creature to life, not unlike the current needed to project moving pictures onto screens. May Clark, in a a later interview, May Clark summed up Whale's microphonic ear. She said, He had to hear what it sounded like. He worked like a conductor. He could hear everything blended together. These initial forays into sound film point the way to Wales' audio tour de force, The Invisible Man, which could not have been made without the radio and the phonograph before that. This film already suggests five years before Orson Welles would adapt The War of the Worlds as a radio drama from the Mercury Theatre. Wells' intuitive grasp of the implications of Victorian vocal disembodiment at work in Wells's fiction, the earlier Wells fiction. Claude Rains in his film debut gets top billing, though the sound of Rains's voice is the real star of The Invisible Man. The technical leap from the old dark house of the previous year is evident in the trick shots of Rains disrobing into nothingness and of objects apparently carried or sent flying by him. These are special effects that so impressed the earlier audiences and are still impressive today. But the special effects overshadow the more subtle accomplishment of the soundtrack and the accumetra that is the invisible man. Whale's most audacious touch, uh, if you know the film You'll, you'll know what, I, what I'm referring to here. The most audacious touch is that his star remains either bandaged or transparent for 70 minutes until his face finally is revealed on his corpse in a lingering shot 30 seconds before the final fade out. This is the only time in the film that we actually see Claude Rains. Viewers come to know him principally through his voice. Whale's Invisible Man heightens viewers' awareness of the disembodied voice, the topo so central to the novel by making prominent use of voiceovers in several scenes where Reigns is heard but not seen. But Whale goes beyond this, capitalizing on the particular effects of the disembodied voice in scenes that feature the then relatively new medium of radio. At the time of the making of the film, broadcast radio in its conventional form was barely a decade old. Marconi had filed his complete specification for his patent on wireless telegraphy and established the first wireless station in the year that saw the publication of Wells's novel. And a number of experimental broadcasts of music and voice had taken place in the years following. Reginald Fessenden made what's generally considered the first widely received broadcast from Brant Rock, south of Boston, near Marshfield, on Christmas Eve 1906 when he played music and read Bible passages over the airwaves to ships offshore. RCA was founded in 1919, and the BBC was officially registered (coughs) in 1922. In the States, the 20s, were a boom time for radio, such that by 1930, a set could be found in over half of American homes. In the UK, it wasn't until 1934 that radio became an inexpensive commodity that anyone could operate with little interference. The, rising, the rise of talking pictures and of Whale's film career coincide with this consolidation of a radio market and mass audience for acousmatic voices. Hollywood's demand for Whale's directorial skills better understood within such an Anglo-American cultural and technological context, in which, the, in which the powers of speech were assuming unprecedented reach and importance. The Invisible Man acknowledges the desire of this newly radio-driven world for electric voices, even as it feeds that hunger through the exploitation of the peculiar qualities of the talking picture. In this way, Wales film takes its place in what Paul Young has called Intermedia History and specifically in the representation of early radio culture, alongside the likes of King Kong, also from 1933. The Whale, of course, sets his film in rural England, not New York City. Paul Young describes how 1930 cinema became what he calls a template for shaping the parameters of radio experience. And although Young doesn't discuss The Invisible Man, Whale's film can be seen both as shaping the parameters of radio experience in a way analogous to the manner in which Wells's novel reflected the disorienting effect of late Victorian sound media and as hinting at the more troubling implications of that experience. One scene in the film shows Kemp sitting at home listening to the radio. An announcer interrupts with a news flash that is itself interrupted by Griffin's invisible hand and acousmatic voice. Whale shows the terror on Kemp's face and his shock as the radio voice in effect comes to life and Griffin invisibly seats himself in front of the fire Here's that clip.
2: The National Station broadcasting this evening's news. Remarkable story from Country Village. The police and doctors are investigating an astonishing story told this afternoon by the people of the village of I think. It appears that a mysterious disease has broken out, infecting a large number of the inhabitants. <clears throat> it takes the form of a delusion that an invisible man is living among them. And several people have been seriously injured, probably through fighting among themselves as their belief that their opponent is an invisible man. The whole village is in a state of panic. And everyone. And everyone deserves the fate that's coming to them. Panic, death. Things worse than death. Don't be afraid, Kemp. It's me, Griffin. jack Griffin. (coughs) Are you
3: my friend? (coughs) I'm frozen with cold. Dead tired. Thank God for a fire.
1: One of the reasons he's freezing is because he's naked, of course. In a later scene, a police commissioner announces to his men in a voiceover accompanied by a brief cutaway to radio antennae and Griffin asleep in Kemp's house that a manhunt is on and a broadcast warning will be sent out. Through Whale's use of tracking shots and montage, viewers in essence become the radio voice. And here is that clip. We've got a terrible responsibility. He's mad and he's invisible. He may be standing beside us now. But he's human
3: and we shall get him. We shall have a thousand men out tonight. Tomorrow we shall have 10,000 volunteers to help them. There's a broadcast warning going out at 10.30. Now, at all costs, we must avoid a panic strike. get away to your districts at once and send me an order of your headquarters. And remember, leave tracks, even if he himself is invisible.
2: I must interrupt the dance music for a moment. I have an urgent message from police headquarters. Early this evening we broadcast a report of an invisible man. The report has now been confirmed. It appears that an unknown man by scientific means has made himself invisible. He has attacked and killed a police inspector and is now at large. The chief of police appeals to the public for help and assistance. Those willing to cooperate in the search are requested to report tomorrow morning to their local station. The invisible man works without clothing. He will have to seek shelter. You're requested to lock every door and window and every outbuilding he may use to hide in. The police will be glad to receive any suggestions that will help in capturing the fugitive. (laughs) Remember, he's solid but cannot be seen. A reward of one thousand pounds will be given to any person whose information leads to his capture. The police appeal to the public to keep calm and to admit uniformed search parties to all property. Yeah,
4: that's
1: him. Still asleep at the end, if you didn't quite catch that. Um, with their fluid movement between voiceovers and radio voices, both of these scenes are notable not only for the ways they integrate radio acoustics with the acousmatics of sound film, but also for the way that they capture the extent to which, in the early years of radio, the perpetual presence of an electrified, disembodied voice in the form of a radio announcer or invisible man could be seen as a way to induce as well as manage terror. Wale's film coincides with the rise of Nazi Germany and the masterful use of the disembodied dictatorial voice of radio to facilitate authoritarian rule. This is a phenomenon that Fritz Lang also explored in his second sound film, The Same Year as the Invisible Man, which was the Nazi band Testament of Dr. Mabuza. Really interesting movie if you haven't seen it uh, and explores some of the same kinds of things that Whale is getting at in a somewhat different way. The dynamic that Whale stages would reach its apogee in the very real mass hysteria that resulted stateside from the later Wells' notorious 1938 broadcast of the War of the Worlds, of course. While Whale and others were adapting his earlier works, H.G. Wells was writing about the viability of new sound media and making his own incursions into radio and sound film. In his 1929 film treatment for a film never made, The King Who Was a King, Wells recalled his own connection with the earliest days of motion pictures in Britain, when, in 1895, Robert K. Paul and he, as Wells put it, had initiated a patent application for a time machine that anticipated most of the stock methods and devices of early movies. Writing during the pivotal period of transition to talkies, Wells reflects on the new presence of the soundtrack and the acousmatic voice. And this is Wells. Sound, too, has become detached for the artist to use as he will. The effect of practical synchronizing of sound with film has been demonstrated and its refinement is close at hand. Thus film and music will be composed together. With the film the voice may be flung in here or there or the word may be made visible and vanish again. Wells would go on to create the scripts for two films, Things to Come and The Man Who Could Work Miracles, and these are both in the mid-30s. But earlier in his experiment in autobiography he had taken what was for him the unusual step of singling out Whale's adaptation for praise. The Invisible Man, Wells writes, is a tale that, thanks largely to the excellent film recently produced by James Whale, is still read as much as it ever was. To many young people nowadays, I am just the author of The Invisible Man. That bit of self-deprecation indicated a larger truth. If many people in 1934... Only associated Wells with the Invisible Man. Perhaps that was because Wells had become one on the radio, welcoming disembodiment and his transformation into an invisible voice when he began broadcasting his periodic talks on the BBC in 1929, just as the radio craze took hold in Britain. Wells, share, well, sorry, Wells shared Wells's high opinion of the Invisible Man and reportedly was proudest of it of all his films. Though Whale's next 19th century adaptation, Bride of Frankenstein, is, for many, his most inspired. Bride of Frankenstein picks up some of the pieces of Mary, Mary Shelley's novel that had been discarded for the first film, Frankenstein, and retains both of Invisible Man's vocal high points, not only the Reigns-esque acousmatic ac- voiceover, which returns in the framing prologue, when Lord Byron, played by Gavin Gordon, reminds Mary Shelley, played by Elsa Lanchester, and the audience, of the plot of the first film over a montage of shots from it, but also the incessant screaming of the irrepressible Una O'Connor. O'Connor, like Whale and many of his regulars, a veteran of the 20s English stage, had brought her distinctive screaming skills to a role as Mrs. Hall, the innkeeper's wife in The Invisible Man, and she played a variation on this in Bride of Frankenstein as Minnie, the housekeeper to Dr. and Mrs. Frankenstein. Beginning with the title, which sets up the sequel as something like the better half of the first film, and on to Lanchester's dual roles as Mary Shelley and the Monsters mate, doublings can be found everywhere in Bride of Frankenstein. O'Connor's shrieks and howls rhyme with the screams of the monster bride herself, when ironically horrified, she first looks on her intended's beseeching mug in the famous climax of the film. The screams, of Bride of Frankenstein take their place in a more varied sonic tapestry than heard before in Whale's work. For one, the monster, as the coming attractions put it, talks. And Whale wanted this to be the case as well. For another, the soundtrack reveals a recent arrival to Whale's work, a striking musical score featuring Franz Waxman's iconic Bride of Frankenstein motif, a recognizable three notes of which were resurrected, perhaps not entirely unconsciously, for Bally High, in Richard Rogers's South Pacific. As it turns out, such a link between film music and a lavish Hollywood musical hints at Whales' most significant sound film accomplishment, which would come next. Whales' Invisible Man was an adaptation that was faithful with respect to tone and technique, capturing Wells's distinctive mix of social comedy and ominous scientific speculation, but less so with respect to content, discarding the more complicated terms of Wells' racial subtext and rendering them for for all intents invisible. This suppression proves temporary, however, for Whale returns to questions of race with a bang and a song in another adaptation, Showboat, 1936. Though it would seem quite a leap from anglophile horror to American musical, This is Whale's final, powerful, and in oral terms, his most significant production, one that confronts the monstrosity of American racial ideology and the spaces that sound film creates between the body and the voice, between the screen and the soundtrack. As if a variation on The Invisible Man, but one that also responds to the parts of the novel his adaptation left behind, Whale's showboat confronts the problem of the black body's visibility and audibility in a manner mainstream white Hollywood cinema largely had resisted. In these ways, the film reflects critically on the concurrence of two American sound media firsts. Drum Kern and Oscar Hammerstein's theatrical version of Showboat, which premiered in Washington in 1927 and has been called the foundation of the modern American musical, as well as a sensitive portrayal of race relations that ranged from the plight of the black underclass to miscegenation. And the Jazz Singer, which had opened in New York just a month before and showcased Al Jolson's blackface routines in the first talkie and film musical. With his version of Showboat, Whale acknowledges that the American stage musical and sound film share genealogies rooted in the sentimentalized performance of race. Whale reveals the invisible bodies as well as ideologies at work in the maintenance of the world of Showboat. Lauren Berlant. Uh, who's a, stud- a scholar of American studies, has described Showboat as, quote, the supreme nostalgic fantasy of an America in which the pain of dominated classes was neither entertaining nor entertainment. Such a fantasy is at work in the best-known moment of Wales production, and that's Paul Robeson's rendition of Old Man River, a song that's been called The Ultimate White Person Spiritual, And one that also happens to be a statement about invisible race labor. Labor. In the film, Robeson plays Joe, a lazy stereotype. Whale's justly famous sequence for Old Man River begins with his camera making a sweeping three-quarter turn around Robeson sitting dockside to settle on his face. And goes on to juxtapose extreme close-ups of that face with scenes of Robeson's working, drunken, and jailed body. And I'd like to play this clip for you now uh, so you can see and hear it for yourself. It's about uh, four minutes, give or take. Uh
5: And that plans have to be so
1: I should say that that song, uh, the part, actually, was written for Robeson. Um, my own sense of this sequence, as with Robeson's performance as Joe throughout the film, is that he's exposed but also weirdly opaque, seemingly disconnected from the scenes, as if he can't quite believe the stereotype he's been assigned to play, as if he were thinking, what's someone with my talents doing in a part like this? He's able to be both there and not there, memorably singing, but at the same time making viewers aware of the self that's not fully embracing or embodying the role, as would, say, method actors who would become their characters. Robeson as Joe is, in other words, out of sync. Such a state is realized technologically at different moments in Old Man River, but especially in the closing seconds in which, as you might have noticed... He sings the final word and closes his mouth with a smile, but all too quickly. His voice still rolls along on the soundtrack. This out of sync moment is a reminder that Robeson's singing was recorded in the sound studio and the filming had to be separately synchronized. But considering that the filming of Showboat lasted two months and that by the end of it Whale had shot 200,000 feet of film and spent a fortune, and that Robeson took meticulous care in the audio recording of his signature song, pre-recording it not with the booming voice used in concert halls, but in a more intimate crooning only two feet away from the microphone, this error, such as it is, becomes more interesting, I think. The error draws attention to, or rather gives away, the artifice of sound film itself, as well as the duality of Robeson's performance in singing, what is, after all, a white man's spiritual. The grin shuts the mouth and stops the voice, but the voice on the soundtrack continues in a moment that doesn't so much reveal the real Robeson as betray the mechanics behind the projected character, the stereotype that is the product of sound film. Lauren Berlant is right to claim that Whale's direction of Robeson in the scene has Frankenstein as what she calls an aesthetic referent and that, quote, Robeson is shot just as Frankenstein's monster is shot, and clearly the politics of monstrosity is meant to be read politically here, unquote. Yet, to this claim, we might add that Whale also has in mind, through the disembodied voice on the soundtrack, the aesthetic referent of the invisible man, and that the politics of monstrosity is on display throughout considerably more of the film than merely the performance of Old Man River. Put another way, Joe is only the most conspicuous talking and singing monster in Showboat. The male protagonist, the riverboat gambler, Gaylord Ravenal, marries the heroine Magnolia Hawks under false pretenses only to abandon her and their child in Chicago when he runs out of money. Ravenal is, of course, a rather obvious monster and a standard fixture in melodrama. A less obvious monster is Helen Morgan's Julie Laverne, the tragic mulatto figure who passes, but whose forced exposure of mixed parentage leads to her departure, along with her white husband, Steve Baker, from the showboat, to avoid violating the band on mixed onstage acting. Voice, once again, gives away identity, or at least the identity that matters, to the world of showboat. Julie reveals her invisible blackness in a performance of Can't Help Loving That Man. As Joe's wife, Queenie, says about it, I didn't ever hear anybody but colored folks sing that song. Sounds funny for Miss Julie to know it. If Joe sings a white man's spiritual to establish his sound film blackness, Julie sings a white man's blues to betray hers. Uh, I don't have time to show you that clip, um, although I'd be happy to. Um, but it's, it's, out, it's out there. It's on YouTube. It's, it's easy to track down. Julie also can't help her status as a product of an interracial relationship, and she can't be helped in the rigid racial codes of the late 19th century Deep South that confer on her marriage the status of a monstrosity. Whale's camera does not flinch during the later scene of Julie's and Steve's public exposure. To evade the authorities who are about to confront him for what they believe is an illegal marriage to a woman the state considers black, Steve draws a knife, and we watch as he slits open Julie's finger and drinks her blood, an act that makes him invisibly black, or as he puts it, a white man that, that's got Negro, Negro blood in him. And here's that scene. A couple of minutes.
3: Stay right here. You know what I told you. Steve! What are you doing with that night? Nice <laughs> What's it mean, Lord?
1: This version does contain many of the original cast, um, and uh, Julie, the woman who plays Julie, Helen Morgan, uh, Charles Winninger, uh, and of course, uh, Robeson. Without wanting to push things too far, I, I would suggest that the aesthetic reference referent of this vampiric scene is no longer Whale's own Frankenstein, so much as it is that other gothic feature of 1931, Todd Browning's Dracula. Under the direction of Whale, showboat doubles as musical and horror film. What at first merely appears to be a vehicle to put on the show becomes an unsettling meditation on what it means to show the self, to make the self visible as social construct, sentimental fantasy, and unreal, which is to say, cinematic integration of disembodied voice with moving image. Wales' film of Wells' novel had erased race in the process of representing the voice of the invisible man, and Showboat had partly restored it, but it was up to Ralph Ellison wholly to recover race alongside voice in a mythology of invisibility fueled by the social consequences of urban modernity. That the title of Ellison's novel echoes the title of Wells's has not been so much ignored by critics as it has been taken for granted as something of an insubstantial given. Ellison's Invisible Man is widely recognized to be among the most distinctive and important American novels of the 20th century, yet Wells tends to be an invisible ancestor in critical discussions of the influence on Ellison of canonically literary figures such as Dante, Hemingway, and Dostoevsky. This is unfortunate because to discount Wells is to miss the ways Ellison's Invisible Man at moments plays as a riff or variation on the Invisible Man, beginning with that loss of the title's article that subtly moves to universalize the protagonist's position at the same time as it retains the singular noun. Beyond and beneath the elusive title, Ellison's debts to Wells underlie the framing of Invisible Man as an acousmatic novel, a kind of phonograph or radio set through which Ellison riffs on and broadcasts a vocal polyphony and verbal jazz that work in part to reclaim the speculative project of Wells's novel for African-American experience. Given Ellison's original training and aspiration to become a professional musician, it should come as no surprise that his Invisible Man exudes so much musicality. As Ellison's biographer Lawrence Jackson has put it, the adolescent Ellison immediately understood that musicians and the new music were the determining ingredient in social affairs, the means through which he might be accepted by his peers. Ellison's knowledge and experience of the new music, as for so many of his contemporaries, were in- entwined with the media through which it was being popularized. Jackson notes that Ellison probably, li- possibly listened to the influential shows broadcast on radio station WFA, which featured jazz bands performing from Dallas's Adolphus Hotel. And Ellison more than once identified himself as an audiophile with a lifelong interest in the workings of radio and phonographs. In an essay originally published in High Fidelity, he recounts trying to write while living in an apartment with its booby trappings of audio equipment, wires, discs, and tapes. Unquote. Later, in his introduction to Invisible Man, he would note that while writing the novel, among other activities, he quote, built audio amplifiers and installed high fidelity sound systems. Unquote. This combined immersion in, on the one hand, the African American musical developments of the 20s and 30s South and on the other, the audio technologies that carried those developments to a national and international audience, shapes the structure of his (coughs) Invisible Man. Ellison's novel is framed by the mediated voices of phonograph and radio as if to suggest that the disembodying techniques of sound reproduction and broadcast constitute the framework in which the racial subject struggles to achieve self-definition in modernity. The prologue revolves around Invisible Man's, and that's actually how he's referred to in discussions of the book, because his Name such as it is, is never actually given. The prologue revolves around Invisible Man's reactions to his playing of a Louis Armstrong disc of Andy Razaf's and Fats Waller's 1929 song What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue on a phonograph? The epilogue ends with Invisible Man's direct address to the reader as listener, that famous rhetorical question that recasts his tale as a pirate radio station broadcast. Quote, who knows but that on the lower frequencies I speak for you. Unquote. Ellison riffs on several of the pivotal moments of Wells's novel. Well into The Invisible Man, as we've seen, Wells had his, his Invisible Man confess his story in the form of an acousmatic flashback to an internal listener, Kemp. Ellison goes further by making the entirety of his protagonist's tale a flashback placed between confessional sections that begin with the revelation, I am an invisible man. Ellison even riffs on Wells' Showboat, the film that in its own way had resonated with Wells' story. Ellison knew Robeson and had heard him sing a radicalized version of Old Man River at a fundraiser for the Negro Playwrights' Company in 1940. Ellison's Invisible Man writes of his drunken affair with the married white woman Sybil, I had to join her glass for glass and in little dramas, which she had dreamed up around the figures of Joe Lewis and Paul Robeson, I was expected to sing Old Man River and just keep rolling along, unquote. Sybil wants to make believe that the narrator shares Robeson's grinning mask and the charismatic, acousmatic voice that forced a white spiritual through it in Showboat, unable to see that such a, such a guise is an out-of-sync fantasy. My talk opened with a scream, and it closes with a wail in an arc that passes through fantasy ecla english deviance and criminality to american jazz and the blues the silent scream of monk's figure gives way to the dying scream of wells as egotist and the cinematic screams of wales audible actors to culminate in louis armstrong's wail as it fills another invisible man's underground cell and i would like to just play the song that features so prominently in ellison's novel As not just a song, but as a record, physical object.
4: Ain't got a friend. My only sin is in my skin. What did I do to be so black and
1: You could make out the lyrics, um, but uh, the, the closing couplet, as Armstrong sings it, "My only sin is in my skin." The irony of these lyrics is that Armstrong's is, of course, a disembodied acousmatic performance, a recorded trumpet and voice. His skin is invisible to his listeners, at least yet he conjures through Ellison's phonograph the bruised figure of the blues beaten out in jazz time. I've been tracing over this talk the continuities in media consciousness not along a strict line of progression, but within a broader field of affinities, from the visual arts and literature to sound film and back to literature, and from Victorians to moderns, each newly aware of the range of media with which their own had to coexist and from which they might and did take inspiration. The conditions of transatlantic modernity allow the influence of Wells' Invisible Man a fugitive dimension. What I've aimed to reconstruct here is a fugitive reception history, a fleeting tuning in where an author's reception is shaped by and for the radio age. Thanks.
0: Um, thanks, John, that, yeah. that was really great. Um, so we're gonna do a sort of hybrid thing. At the end we're going to have uh, some questions um, from the audience for John and then try to segue into a bit of a discussion among people in the audience where apparently John will not be permitted to speak until uh, a suitable amount of time has elapsed, and then he can respond. Um, so I'll
1: just be up here silently screaming.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and for people on the podcast, that takes on all sorts of special uh, significance. So questions. Yes. And this microphone does not go out to here; it just goes out into the internet eventually. Uh,
6: This is perhaps peripheral, but why is Old Man River the ultimate white man spiritual? Aren't most of the spirituals that make it into the mainstream white man spirituals? Why is this spiritual different from all other
0: (laughs) spirituals?
1: Oh, am I supposed to talk or?
0: You are are allowed to speak for the first however many questions we have (laughs) according to the rules of whatever this is.
7: Hoping uh, is that we could have some discussion around it in a circle, in addition to just
1: going back and forth in the dialogue. Uh But if there's some direct questions, this is certainly one of them. And <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm happy to um, try to answer it, or I can I can also just hold back for a while. Um, let me let me just say, the ultimate white person spiritual. Those were not my words.
5: Um, <laughs> okay, I know that.
1: Um, I was I was quoting uh, Richard Dyer, who's. Uh, Who's probably in a better position to judge than I am, but um, maybe it's maybe it's not. You know, I I, um, I think your point is a really good one, and um, I wouldn't I wouldn't put too much emphasis on on that. I think that it's got that certainly that song has a has a kind of uh, you know has a level of popularity and sort of a certain kind of place in in. Uh, the the wider cultural consciousness that gives it you know m- maybe it's in the top five. Right. <laughs>
8: um, <laughs> I, know, I was just thinking somebody will a vote, right?
1: Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean do you have thoughts about do you have thoughts about that? I mean it's sort of what was you know motivating your question. Uh,
6: I I was struck by the statement. It just didn't ring true. I mean I can think of other ones that are more egregious. Old Black Joe, do you know that one? Mm. I mean, it, it presents such an image of docility that it's horrifying to me. So that's why I, I was discounting this.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Can you introduce yourself too. Oh. it. I guess, I mean, I would also say, yeah. Um, do you wanna? Uh, who am I? I'm an invisible man. No, I'm,
6: <laughs> I'm David Wunsch. I teach at UMass Lowell and I wow. teach radio. So great, great. that's what drew me here. Great,
1: great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I mean, maybe that, that judgment sounds more harsh than it, than it should. I mean, I, I don't want to uh, take credit away from the song what the song does, because it's a remarkable song, and, and what Hammerstein was trying to do in those lyrics is pretty remarkable and unprecedented. Uh, so, so let me just I'll just put that, put that in too.: yeah.
9: yeah. Sandy: Hi, I'm Sandy. Okay. I had a question. I was wondering, um, what is the combined notion of transatlantic continuity, intertextuality, and aesthetic reference doing to something like a disembodied acousmatics, right? Because all of these notions seem to be a kind of layering, right? A kind of... um, it's, it's about giving skin to a, a, a voice, right? Yeah. It's about giving skin to an acousmatics, right? All this notion that, um, you know, there's a back and forth. There's continuity, there's intertextuality, there are aesthetic reference, right? So it seems to me it's, it's pushing and challenging this notion of a disembodied acousmatics and I was wondering what you thought about that.
1: Yeah, I, li- I like the way you, you put that. Um, um, I think that's, that's, that's a great observation I hadn't really thought about is sort of um, giving, not, not, not exactly giving a body to, or giving a different kind of body.
9: You know? Yeah, it seems to be a layering of some kind. It's it, uh, um, an accretion of some kind that gives, uh, maybe not body, I don't know what the word is, but uh, it gives a certain weight or a specific... Um, It gives specificity to a voice, right? That the, the yeah. voice is no longer uh, disembodied, but we can, we can point to. We can talk about aesthetic reference, for example.
5: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I, I think, I think that's, that's, that's really nice, actually, that kind of formulation. It's, sort of, um, it's not really re-embodying the voice, but it's giving the voice a kind well, you said weight. I was thinking mass. I was trying mm-hmm. to think of what kind of words would, would I use. Um, uh, accretion is is nice too, yeah. That's that's great.
7: And, and so are you asking? I mean, that, that how invisible is it to? <laughs> is of, like I, I was thinking too, listening to Louis Armstrong, that exactly. there are white guys who sing like that, but we assume they're black, right? And so that even though yeah. we can't see the voice, that it's. There's an assumption, I mean is that I don't know if that's quite the accretion or the way that the kind and mean, that maybe it's pushing in a different direction, but that.
9: the contextualizing does something to a voice that we assume is disembodied, right? That right. contextualizing
7: It's a jazz song, it's a hip hop song uh, like that, or what are you thinking? Or so you thinking the radio itself?
9: I'm not sure what I'm thinking either. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean
7: I, no, 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 I, no. I was just curious. It, it,
8: because I sort of took what you were saying, Sandy, to be talking about what John was doing,
9: mm-hmm. which was
8: actually an act of kind of methodological accretion, right? right. In which kind of right. tracing that field of affinities, um, the voices themselves sort of played themselves out across time. Uh, so I wasn't sure whether you were. Yeah, I was. That that. Um, so when I was nodding my head initially, I was like, "Oh, yeah, it's about his method." But then I'm not sure if that's what you were after. So.
6: Sorry, yeah. uh, hi John, you hey. know who I am. Uh, one of the things one of the things that sort of comes from what we've just been talking about uh, with the word accretion I was just particularly struck by the way you I, I thought it was beautiful the way you handled the Munch monk painting at the beginning and s- described those wavy lines in the background as if they were the sound waves of the sound we're not hearing, right? The traces, the whatever. And, and then went on to do the flip side of that in your reading of the invisibility that, is, that leaves traces, mm-hmm. right? That, that is there in some way. My question is really about uh, wanting to uh, introduce the distinction between radio uh, and recorded voice or sound, right? Um, and I guess the question emerged for me from the moment in the clip of The Invisible Man where, we z- where the camera goes into the,
1: what's the thing
6: called, you know? The, the horn, yeah, like the, the, radi- horn the radio of horn. The of the radio, right? And we go into it, and we go to the other locations in the country where people are listening at this moment, yeah. right? And, you know, for me, I immediately went to simultaneity and what Benedict Anderson does with simultaneity mm-hmm. as that, that nation feeling, right? Um, whereas recorded sound introduces an entirely different thing, the time lag between... When the recording was made, and when you happen to be relating to it or in contact with it, um,
1: where do we go with that?
6: Once we introduce that distinction, how does that affect what you're what you're doing in this in this work?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, you know, you're absolutely right, um, and I I plead guilty to uh, a kind of collapsing of those media distinctions here. Um, I guess uh, what I'm you know the, the the larger question that I'm thinking about is what happens to uh, the voice, the individual voice, when sound media electrify it in this way. But you know you're 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 totally on the mark about this distinction, which you know you you know it's been ma- it's been made different kinds of ways. Um, and you mentioned Anderson, but you can think about the phonograph as an archiving device, the radio as a as a sort of broadcasting device, right? You know that that they seem in some respects to be almost opposed. Um, one contains The voice; the other spreads the voice. You know, broadcasting is from uh, like it's an agricultural term, I think, right? Like spreading seed. Um, uh, So, I I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, and and I've I've talked about the phonograph specifically in other places. Uh, This was, I guess, one of the things I was trying to do in this paper was to try to move. Move away from that kind of specificity into something a little bit more broad in many different ways um, but i um uh, i th- I think that uh that distinction you're making you're you're observing is ex- is exactly on the mark um and it would i guess it would just it would probably change um what i'm what i'm arguing here um it would um, I'm not sure it would violate it. I mean, I do think there is some overlap, I should say, right? I mean, of course, records were played on the radio. You know, that, that um, the radio could be used to, you know, take, take a phonograph recording and turn it into a, a group, a shared experience, a national experience. So, um, you know, that that was always the the concern of the early phonograph users, which is what would, what would be done with this record? You know, like how could it be used against me yeah. in a court of law? Right? Um, but, uh, but the radio allows for that kind of use and abuse of the phonograph record or of the, the, the single voice, right? as I, I was mentioning sort of the, uh, what happens in, in Germany and, and Hitler's sort of masterful <coughs> use of the radio
0: um but but yeah that's that's a great point. Um so I guess we want to move into a discussion kind of scene soon. Um, well I have a I have a question uh, before we uh do that kind of thing. Um yeah. so about the the radio and that sort of reminded me of a question sort of about um subject making and in interpolation i guess in this um with the relation to the radio uh, clip that we saw from from the movie um how the voice coming out of the radio um going to all of these different places is a way of making these people sort of part of some kind of of some kind of public of some kind of sonic community and sort of integrating them into that in the sort of like uh interpolating capacity to say like okay once the guy hears the 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 police on the radio saying close your close your windows now all of a sudden he's part of the community of people that need to be afraid of the of the invisible man coming and it seemed like there's a parallel with the sort of in sort of a gruesome way with the end of of Wells's book where the invisible man himself who is not part of society because he cannot be seen only becomes visible from a similar sort of um, hailing by society, like this, when they literally beat him and then once he is hailed by society as this sort of, you know, figure, then all of a sudden he becomes visible, right? He goes from invisible to invisible and like part of society, as soon as he can be sort of like contained into this, into a sort of physical, into a physical sense, Mm -hmm. uh, into a, into sort of like a physical uh, sociality, I guess. Um, And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts about sort of subject making and how these people get integrated into, into different social units or like sort of technical publics, hmm. which is maybe a CMS kind of question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a great question.
1: Uh, I, I, um, I guess, you know, it's funny, as you were asking, I was thinking about, uh, you were talking about the end of Invisible Man where he's beaten, and I was thinking about sort of the, the body and what happens to the body um, the bruising, and then I was thinking about the Louis Armstrong song too, sort of black and blue. Um, you know, it's what it's what happens to the Invisible Man. You know, he's 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 reduced to this sort of bruised corpse uh, at the end. Um, I'm not sure that that really addresses your question at all. <laughs> uh, it's what was going through my mind, sort of uh, uh, free associating. Um, but I I think um, you know maybe maybe. I feel like I've been talking a lot, um, so maybe maybe we could bring in other people with that question.
9: way This notion of simultaneity and how you know that's about a kind of nation building.
6: As you were speaking, in fact, I was just thinking of that wonderful business where you see all the locks being locked, yeah. right, one after another, all Great the variety. It's a terrific moment, and and it has something to do with what you're talking about because it's like these are the people right? These and no others are the people who have to lock their doors, and we see them in the act, um, of acting out the subject they've been interpolated to perform, right? Um, that's just what it leads me to think about. But, and then I guess in turn that makes me want to ask, uh, because that's an image that so reinforces a certain ideology about broadcasting, which is passive, passive uh, you know, uh, robotic audience does whatever they're told to do over the broadcast, right? Uh, is there any, are there any images in what you've presented to us in which there's a sort of different picture of like audience relation being resistant or reshaping what they hear or whatever?
8: I don't know, I don't even well, need to necessarily turn it to you. It did, seem, it did seem, I thought the notion of technical publics was interesting here, and it just made me think of one thing that you were talking about, which was the mass audience for the acoustic voice. But it seems like here what you're tracing is something like a mass audience for thinking about the relationship between kind of collective subjectivities, voice, and these new technologies, right? Hmm. Um, meaning, what was so interesting to me is like you, you talked about these disembodied voices, but everybody was obsessed with bodies right, like, can we find the body, or or ropes in singing about the body, right, and there's this, like, heavy visual insistence on the body, Um, and then his body is revealed at the end, so there's this weird discourse of, like, bodies in all of this technology, right, which suggests that um, maybe they're not disembodied, but that the body is being reformulated as a function of these new technologies, Ah. or how the body is processed by publics. But it did seem to me like there was a kind of... Um, publicity function here, and publicity not in the sense of a of a, of bad publicity, but what Jim and, I'm sorry, I forget your name, Nick are talking about, um, a kind of public constituting function, which seemed also to be part of your subject matter, right, when you talked about a broader field of affinities, right, a, like, mm. like the media, there's kind of a transmedia way of talking about race here, um,
9: I don't know, so, could you introduce yourself?
8: Oh, I'm sorry, I'm Joel Burgess.
5: Oh great! Hi,
9: <laughs> There was also that one moment of agency, right, where the Invisible Man turns off the radio, yeah. Yeah. and his voice becomes a prosthetic to, um, you know, what what was being broadcast, right? Yeah. So that you know, one need not rely on the radio so much. One can become one's own.
6: That's really such a creepy moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
9: it's, it's, we're supposed to
6: believe that's a live broadcast going right. on on the radio, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. But he, and he, and he. Picks, picks up, right yeah. and yeah, he, he right takes in. it over
8: as if he's read the script, he's memorized exactly. the script, right. but there is no script, yeah. right? right? Well, he he turns it into like a note of doom, right? Like yeah. something yeah. terrible is going to happen. Yes. <laughs> in his reign of terror. But that's, yeah, a, yeah,
1: that's yeah, a good observation,
8: yeah. because he, he does twist it. Right,
9: with a tone of sarcasm that yes. we didn't get with the you know, the, the voice of the notes. radio, which is just very, sort of, yeah. Well, but he of, sort of made an right up, like,
0: overtly with okay, here's one voice that you can't see what's coming from, and now another. And so I was thinking back on my question again, and it sort of seems like he's more like the radio uh, in a certain sense than he is, like, people listening to the radio, because he is this force that can come out and sort of, like, come into your house and talk to you, because like the radio can't, and people your can't own go body to the radio in, in certain ways, but at the end of a book, you can get the body to the invisible man by eating him up by, like, finding his body and hitting him on his body, then sort of make it appear. Um, and that's something you can't do with the, with the radio, at least I don't know what that
8: look like. not to turn this back on you, but do you know George Washington Cable's The Grandes Scenes?
1: Uh, no, not really well, no. Uh, you should read it, yeah. because,
8: um, okay. I mean, I, I've, I've given a talk on it at one point about sort of race and voice and sound in it. Um, but uh, there's a whole section with the gramophone um and the the text itself is so clearly conscious of um of sound technologies at the same time that it's understanding dialect literature i think as a sound technology and it, it was a deeply disturbing text at the turn of the at the end of the 20th, 19th century um so disturbing in its representation of white people as speaking like blacks that uh Cable became the object of, you know, basically terrorist threats. Like, we're going to kill you. Um, but it's it's doing a lot of the same kind of cultural work. I think that that's interesting to you um, uh, around race, technology, sound, um, both with the book too. It's it's more an observation. Than anything. Sure,
6: surely, um, I mean, we're all familiar with BBC English, right? And the notion. I kept thinking of how bland and personal you know non-individualized the radio voices would be you know the right. announcers voices and that moment when he turns the radio off it's you hear a distinctive distinctly personal voice <laughs> in mm-hmm. some way and um I don't know. This your, your comments were just making me think of that, but I'm not I just dropped the thread of my. Well,
8: there's something like what's so fascinating about um, I mean in the gramophone instance and in, in the grandest scenes it's all about the immediacy of the voice. It's, it's what made me think that it's not about its disembodiment. It's weirdly about like the failure of literature to be able to capture the immediacy of what can be captured on through a gramophone now. And what's so interesting in the moment when he turns the thing too is that it does turn kind of embodied, right? Like suddenly there's a physical presence in the room that wasn't there before, right? Yeah. Um, and and that's that's what's so upsetting about uh, the Invisible Man, right? Is he's an invisible physical presence, right? He's not just invisible. He's not a voice. Yeah. He's a voice attached to a body we right. can't see right there. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like a
1: sort of it's sort of like a semi-embodied voice, right? right. You know, because he's still very much a body, like he gets cold, you know, he needs, he needs the fire, right, and in the novel he, get, he gets a cold, he has a cold throughout the whole book, he's sneezing and coughing everywhere he goes, it's, it's comic, um, but it's also this reminder that he's not really disembodied exactly. Right.
8: He know? needs an indentation in a chair.
6: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it is sort of
8: interested in the indexicality, right? Of voice, like it's weird, right? Like the the voice registering everywhere. And in a weird way that you're right, like that scene is kind of an allegory for early sound cinema, right? The way we're figuring out how to like, mark mark actual images with sounds, right? And that scene actually is showing us the image getting marked with a physical sound, right? It's a really nice scene that way. Um, Which would change the parallel from radio at that moment to cinema, such that there's a way in which cinema becomes something different in that moment than what the radio is doing, right? Mm. Mm. Sorry. give the graduate
7: students a chance. Anything? <laughs> put the direction, the in conversation in, in any direction, <laughs> in any direction you like. Yeah, anything of interest.
10: I guess I have a question that um, I, I think maybe you might have touched on, but I missed. Uh, missed. Um, we're talking about how um, this sort of recorded sound or, or disembodied sound whether it's, it's the radio or um, something that's already been recorded um, sort of makes um, race invisible but in all of the examples it seems to to try to be making race just as visible in, in other ways um, I mean looking at uh, especially the showboat example the, the way that that song is written and performed in in that sort of dialect yeah. it, it's almost like over, overtly racialized in a way that it might not be um, if it were more a live performance. So I guess it's not really a question, but just yeah. something that I thought of that um, I would like to hear what you also thought
1: of. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, you're making a, a really good point about the way that that song encodes race. Codes, ideas of race uh, that get beyond um, merely the visual experience of seeing it performed. Uh, that that go into you know the question of the lyrics and the, the sort of the mannerisms of the performance. Um, yeah, I, I mean that's that's a that's a a great point. I I guess you know I I think I would differentiate here between like let's say the, the a version of it that was done in a musical, you know, a live performance on stage and the way in which Whale is constructing this and, and this sort of that point I was trying to make about the kind of, the mistake that, that actually turns out to be a, a sort of, has, has a kind of value uh, to the way that Robeson is playing it and Whale is filming it. Um, trying to, to draw our attention to the artifice of the experience. right? And although it's still a really effective, I mean, this is something I, I don't really know what to do with because uh, it's still such an effective sequence, you know, that the, the performance is a consummate performance in a way, you know, Robeson is the definitive version of the song, and yet there's this weird kind of flaw to it. I mean, maybe that's what makes it so, you know, that every, everything perfect has to have some kind of flaw or something, I don't know, but um, I think that's you know, that's what, what interests me about the film the film version of this. and that's why I think the film version has a kind of value, maybe, that, that a live performance wouldn't. Yes,
9: what I find interesting about that scene is um, you know, the foil that Robeson is pitting himself against, right? And that's Old Man River, right? Yeah. This um, this thing that is not a discrete. I mean, if we're thinking about the river, it's not something that's discrete, right? And throughout, we get scenes of his being just embodied, right? This muscular scene where he's, um, you know, carrying these bales of I don't know what, right? Um, so, I, I don't know if there's something there that if, if we can riff on, you know, this notion of waves and frequency uh-huh. and um you know this old man river this personified thing right but not really personified because it's not something discreet, right it's not something that you can actually grasp you can't really grasp the river just you know it keeps on flowing and flowing along right um so i i, know, I think that I, I think that is in conversation with your um notion that it, it's it's about you know, there's a kind of struggle there that Robeson is um, um, uh, trying to um, to embody. So, I yeah, don't that's know.
1: that's really that's that's great. I hadn't thought about it, but that's that's neat. I like it.
9: Mm-hmm. It seems to really
0: sort of. I think Stephen was still here, but it seems to really sort of to something like Stephen talks about in um, his work on sound <coughs> and water, and, yeah. and water is. Uh, and trans- transduction of sound. So that sound being transmitted through uh, through various media. And that includes the air, of course. And so part of what is interesting about, like we were talking again, the difference between um, the voice of the radio and the invisible man's voice, but he's still in the room, is this kind of transduction and like the voice coming from one place through something to another place. And so in a very basic sense, like mediation, like where are these voices coming from? And I like the idea of, Old man River, not necessarily not being a, a personified, he's not discrete, but not being personified because, in a sense, he is the like a, medium, a sort of medium of, for like commerce and for all of these sort of things that happen. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. For the, yeah, yeah, for yeah. the showboat so itself, right. etc. And so, like, all of these things sort of go through the river, and it's an interesting sort of ice metaphor for these like communication channels that you're talking about. Yeah, I would
7: pick up on that too. I think. You know, we had a talk a, a few weeks ago with Hannah Rose Shell talking about camouflage uh, and how not to be seen in this, you know, Monty Python skit where it shows people not being seen and then when they show themselves being blown up, and it's it very clever. <laughs> uh, but that there are, you know, British war films as well showing how to be, how not to be seen. There was actually training films in camouflage that tried to do this, and and it was in your talk as well. Got me sort of thinking about the, the functions of invisibility. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing that I always think of media in terms of what it conveys, right? And and not and less in what it doesn't convey, or at least that the idea of bringing that out more clearly is, is very interesting. Uh, and and the voice that can't be seen, and the, the 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 voice that can be seen but not heard, and all those things that the the, the things that are taken out um, of the picture are interesting. And I guess one of the one of the things I'm, I sort of always think about is how can we connect some of these old media, right, from player pianos to the gramophone to the, the early film, the silent films to the talkie films, that as we go through new, different kinds of media, that the kinds of invisibility change, right? That there's something like if I want to be invisible going into the parking lot, I can't use my swipe card. Because right? I'll be tracked going in, and I'll be tracked going out, and that it's, when I go to a website, it's very difficult for me to be invisible or know I'm being invisible, or when I do a search on Google, right, am I, is that invisible or not? Usually not. Uh, I assume nobody cares, but I also kind of assume that if somebody does care, they can probably find out. That I was sure. looking up how to make a Molotov cocktail, you know, just for my kid, because I had to explain, you know,
8: what, <laughs> how do
7: exactly you make a Molotov, you know? And so that you know, it was kind—it's of, kind of interesting to me to think, sort of, how then, if you know, it, as media changes, that the forms of invisibility and maybe the functions of invisibility change as well, uh, and and the things that are left mm-hmm. out and the things that are tried to be hidden, I I study Japanese animation, where, uh, you know, a lot of, I'd say Japanese animators, what do you think about anime compared to Disney and other things, and they say, well, it's not very animated, is it? You know, they all feel very bad about it. They say, we don't have enough money. We, we have to hide that we're not drawing the movements, we're just moving the drawings uh, in order to make it cheaper to make and, and or get the, stay on schedule. And there's another, you know, and I hadn't thought of it in this terms of invisibility, but it sort of is this process of hiding within media. It's like, it, it's, I don't know, it just got me thinking that all my work in thinking about media is unraveling the representations less than unraveling what's not represented. And so, I don't know, that was, it was very interesting. And I don't know, you know I, I guess one of the things I'm always curious is how you know, it can relate to other people's work as well. So I thought I'd throw that in uh,
8: for one little thing as well. I just have uh, two things. That, like what happens, I, I mean, the, I think you're right that that out of sync moment is, it feels intentional. Like, I mean, you didn't say that, but it felt, like, how could they miss it, right? <laughs> I mean, like, the rest of it's all, it's a perfectly orchestrated sequence. And that beautiful, I mean, you're right, that beautiful, almost 360-degree opening shot, right? Like, they're clearly calling visual attention to this long sonic moment, right, musical moment. So, like, the, for the end to suddenly have a technological glitch <laughs> seems highly un- weird to me. Um, And and I I don't know, maybe I'm just wanting to read intentionality there in the way we sort of want to read, you know, Robeson is unhappy with the stereotypies and happening, right? Um, But I had this sort of sense again of a kind of collectivity at that moment, right? Like as his voice disappeared out, I thought, well, where has his voice gone? But there is like, right, he slowly becomes a collective subject in that sequence, right? In that the men sort of slowly circle around him. Mm -hmm. So his voice just becomes one among others. So it seemed like there was some sort of assertion of um, sonic community in this moment, right? Um, uh, the other question I had is sort of methodological, um, uh, which is about the strategy of accretion. Um, uh, I'll put it simply like, what's up with that? Like, <laughs>
4: <laughs> like,
8: um, or more like um, <laughs> disciplinarily, uh, what is the effort here? Like, you invoked this notion of intermediate history. Is the effort to kind of produce an intermediate history of a concept like race or invisibility, the way Ian was playing it out? Um, what's... I mean, and this is really... Like, I guess I'm asking about the larger project at some level. Um, what's, what's happening with the kind of collocation of or accretion of things that we were getting here? What's the effort behind
1: it? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the, the, the book that I'm working... This This is the... This would be the the final chapter of the book I'm working on and um, I'm I'm going from about 1850 or so to about 1950, you know, sort of Ellison is my my end point here. Uh, and what I'm what I'm trying to look at there is I'm I'm interested in the way that that evolving media over that period uh, later 19th century, early 20th influence the literary cultural imagination and um, and at the same time that they're changing ideas of literary and cultural circulation um, so uh, <laughs> yeah so I, li- I like you know what's up with that um, <laughs> um, I mean it's you know I don't I don't uh, I, I guess I, you know the 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 sort of least sophisticated way I can answer it is just, this is just sort of how I was thinking. You know, I was sort of, I found myself kind of going from A to B to C and, or from maybe from like I was thinking about Wells and I was thinking about Ellison and I was thinking like how do you get there? You know, like how does, how do you connect those two, two points? Mm. Um, what kind of line or you know, field um, could, I, could I map to, to do that? Um, and, and, you know, more specifically to, to this particular uh, talk and this, and this chapter that it's taken from. But, uh, I, you know, in an earlier chapter of this book, I'm looking at the Atlantic Telegraph Cable. Because what I'm, what I'm trying to do as well here is sort of map out a, a, an idea of sort of transatlantic modernity and how, what kind of shape does that take through the media that are evolving during this period. And so the Atlantic Telegraph Cable of the 1850s and 1860s is something, it's, it's, it's sort of like a perfect case study for me because it's obviously a huge media moment, you know, when they establish this cable connecting Britain and America and they can send telegrams back and forth instantaneously or more or less. Um, but it also becomes uh, a kind of uh, uh, focal point for literary uh, flights of imagination. You know there, there are many authors who take this up, write uh, poems uh, in honor of the Cable, make weird kinds of references to it in poems you wouldn't expect to find it in. Like Emerson writes this long poem about a camping trip he takes to the Adirondacks, and right in the middle of this poem, he's got this long discursive reference to the Atlantic Cable. Um, uh, just, I mean, just as a random example and, and it's, it's, so I'm taking that kind of thing up and that's another chapter that you could also say what's up with that about uh, so you could, because, Is it fair to say
8: that the impulse is genealogical here that is yeah. like, or to go to the, an epaterai term of like a kind of mapping of a mediascape across time yeah. so that we can see the pressure points as they accrete
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take it that, okay. <laughs> That's great <laughs>
10: throwing a wrench in the conversation, but um, I come from a film background, and I think the film element, I wasn't expecting that for some reason. I don't know if it's not in the description, but <laughs> I was really interested by that. And But you're talking about all these this shift in media during this period of time, but you never mentioned photography, and I wonder if you're just leaving it out because there, there is no sound element, or is that does photography have anything to do with this? Or
1: Yeah, uh, um, that's I'm sorry,
10: who? who? I'm, I'm Hillary, I'm another grad student. Oh, okay,
1: um, great. Uh, yeah, it, it's. You, I mean, you make a really good point. Where's photography in this? And um, you know, obviously, I didn't didn't really bring it in here. Um, the I am I am going to be discussing that. I the I have one chapter left to write in this <laughs> this book. It's the first chapter, um, in which I'm going to be looking at. It's a chapter on war, and I'm going to be looking at the Crimean War and the civil American Civil War as a kind of the American Civil War is a kind of version of the Crimean War, a kind of mediated version of the Crimean War, and photography is going to play a pretty important role in that chapter uh, because both of those wars were, you know, had had photography was so central to the way that those were those wars were uh, understood. But yeah.
0: All right, let's. Well, Thank you very much again. Yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you all for coming. And there is a reception in building, I don't remember the 14N3, 14 14E310, four, 14 N, N, e, e, and we have the bottle of CMS wine, which we gave to the... <laughs> Are you serious? Yes, <laughs> I am serious. <laughs> we don't <make> it ourselves. <laughs> we it's, it's our own special vintage. Um, but thanks again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you.